Welcome to The Film File, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks, in glorious Technicolor. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. And this is episode 166. We've been with you for 166, I was going to say weeks, but there have been occasions where when we first started, we used to do this fortnightly, every three weeks. Fortnightly, didn't yeah. we? Every three weeks. So we didn't have a regular. We just did it. And now, after lockdown, uh, we seem to be uh, we seem to be into our groove. Yeah. Interesting enough, I uh, had some friends over last night, not for royal reasons, <laughs> but because my other half was out of the house with the kiddo, yep. and so uh, I had the band round, some acoustic guitars, a bit of playing, and then we all got to talking about lockdown and what we were doing in lockdown. And what a, a magical world lockdown seems to be now. Yeah, we, we've been talking about it as well this week at work. Like I wonder if there's house. something in the national consciousness about it that everyone's suddenly talking about it. It must be because, yeah, it's just suddenly sparked up this week that we were just discussing like all things that went on during lockdown and how we coped and what changed in our lives. And, you know, even last night at work, like when I was helping close down one of the screens, I was chatting to the guy who was closing the screen down. Like he was asking, like, "Oh, do you keep in contact with such and such and such and such who used to work for us?" So, like, well, no, sadly, I've lost touch with a lot of people, and lockdown is part of the reason for that. That I've lost yeah. touch with a good few people who are kept quite close to me. Regular gaming group that I used to have round, most of them have drifted off, like to other parts of the country now because lockdown. They lost the jobs during, and I had to get something else. So it's just created a whole different world for us there's so many things that changed yes but we were watching concerts online that artists yeah theater shows yeah theater shows everything changed in the public psyche and it just seems so bizarre and surreal when you look back at it now yeah absolutely because they announced this week didn't they that it's no longer a world health issue yeah Sadly, that means that some people have gone, oh, COVID doesn't exist anymore. No, it does still exist. It's just not a pandemic status anymore. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. It, it's it's kind of getting controlled. And you know how it's getting controlled? Because many of us had our jabs and helped control it. Yes. And that's a conversation for another day. Yeah. Let's get on to geekness. We quickly mentioned about concerts, like watching them online during lockdowns, etc. just then. But I've only got a couple of weeks before one big concert comes to Sheffield, and that's the Def Leppard one. Yes. Yeah, well, I'll see you there. And I'm sure that you saw that um, in support of smaller venues, the boys from Def Leppard are doing a, a rather more condensed gig on the Friday night before the big event one at Bramall Lane. Leadmill, they're showing their support for the great venue that it is. And they've they've set up a gig and pretty much the tickets have all sold out as they would because it's not a huge venue. But it's the, the statements that um, Joe put out was fantastic. Just saying like, you know, small like clubs like Leadmill, etc. are so important to the music industry and so important to rising artists and they want to give something back. This is a stadium rocker group. You can't get more stadium rocker than Def Leppard. And they're playing the Leadmill. How close and intimate yes. big will that be? That'll be amazing. I'll let you know. I'll be there. Well, I'm, I've got the Bramall Lane one on the Monday, so I couldn't quite justify splashing out for another <laughs> set of tickets. But I can't wait. So excited. Ah, good. You know, yeah, a couple of weeks away. Only a couple of weeks away. It's nice to be getting back to like going to full gigs. But let's get on with some sort of. Uh, shall we get on with some geekery? Some nonsense. Uh, be- yes. Yeah. What, that's what you're here for. Yeah. Um, last week we set our social challenge we did i'm, I'm enjoying setting our, our social challenges i really am it's nice to it's nice to connect with you guys and it's nice to know what you think and what did you think about last week's social question well the question was what makes you well up with a tear in your eye in films 
Are there any scenes or movies that strike the heartstrings and make you pretend it's dust in your eye? Those moments in films that no matter how many times that you watch it, you still feel yourself reduced to a blubbering mess. I'm glad you said dust in your eye. <laughs> yes, that's kind of yeah. I've got something in my eyes. <laughs> but dust just flew. I'm, I'm not. I'm not weeping like a small child. <laughs> just coincidentally, that dust got in the eye just as ET died. <laughs> <laughs> um, Stephen Young replied with. This time, it's got to be the farewell scene in A Monster Calls, as the young lad says, says goodbye to his cancer patient mum. Reduce my dad and I to tears on more than one occasion. Powerful stuff. Yeah, great choice. Oh, yeah. Monster Calls is such a great film. That's getting added to the deep dive list, you realise it. This is the... <laughs> Which we discussed before we started recording. The ever-growing <laughs> deep dive list. If we make it to 70, we should have got most most of everything done on it. I mean, in age, not in number. <laughs> Carl told me last night, because he, he knows that he, he'd probably not submit his answer in time for the show, uh, but he told me at work last night, Toy Story 3, the key Oh, yeah, scene. I didn't make that. It had been made my list, but yeah, yeah, of course. Harvey Morton said, great question. When Bing Bong gets left behind in Inside Out, and when Dory gets reunited with her parents in Finding Dory, others that always get me are the last dance scene in After Sun, and when Jackson dies in A Star Is Born, and his dog is barking outside. Uh, didn't make me cry, but I can see uh, the the connection with with the dog barking. Yeah, that. Kelly at Pixie Dust over on Twitter. Et just simply et. I replied saying there's multiple breaking points for me in that film. The resurrection moment gets the happy tears. The final scene yeah. rips my heart right out of my chest. Basically, the whole like come stay, I'll be right here. That's it. I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Jones, I'm an easy audience if a film wants me to cry, but the end sequence of Big Fish me has me blubbing no matter how many times I see it. And that's a, I, I replied to say that's a great choice. Not watched it in ages, and it's now been bumped up not only on the rewatch list, but it is on the deep dive list for future plans on the show, um, which I've said that I'll tag Robert in once we talk about it so they can listen and uh, see what he thinks. Grumpy Duck, there's a few. Pay It Forward, Love Actually, Pixar Films, and especially this part of this one, and posted a GIF. Again, it's Bing Bong in Inside Out. Bing Bong seems to have captured people's imaginations and hearts in a beautiful way. Pixar always get you right in the feels. Coco and yeah, Finding Nemo in particular for me always reduce me to tears. Yeah, the beginning of Up. Yeah, Pixie Dust replied to that one to say that they find Up and Inside Out very emotional, and the Toy Story films. Um, Imran said, when M dies in Casino Royale, I'm, I'd not thought of that, but yeah. No. Okay. That was, uh, that, I never thought that a Bond film could hit me as hard as that moment did. Then he realised that he said Casino Royale, as I meant Skyfall. We knew where you were coming from. We knew what scene yeah. you were talking about. And uh, Stevie Dan replied to that to say, when Bond dies in No Time to Die, you never would have expected it from a Bond film that they can no. really play on the heartstrings. Emotional end to an era. Stevie Dan 1969 said Titanic as well. The reason for that. Can't believe I paid £10 for that shite. <laughs> you took the gag right out of my mouth. <laughs> I said I feel the same when I, when I think about Paul Blart Morcop. But Stevie Dan then went, said, seriously, though, was gutted when Han Solo died and Richard Gere in Hachiko. And Moon Age okay. Daydream always reduces him to tears because really misses the legend. Yeah. Dennis Obi, Toy Story 3 and up, get the votes again. Lizzie the ring tattooing scene in the fountain. Over on Facebook, Lynn. Lindsay's story. Whenever I hear the theme to E.T., I go back to being a little kid and crying my eyes out. Yep, gets me every time. Uh, Janet Melling, The Green Mile, so many times, but when he saves the mouse and his electrocution scene saying, I'm sorry for what I am, and when he asks not to have that thing over his face as he's scared of the dark, yeah, I can feel myself welling up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you know what happened then? I just got a, like, a little shiver. 
Down my oh, spine that is that such one, a powerful moment. That. Oh, man. My mum replied to Janet to say, same film, uh, when he tries to save the little girls. To, oh, I, I'm get, that's it. We're going to have to take a break recording at this rate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to drop one on you now. Um, I, I set up War Horse. I just blubbed all the way through War Horse. Uh, I was a wreck came out of that. I'll never want to see that film again. Bambi's mom uh, was probably my first introduction to yeah. to pain in a, in a movie. My mom agrees with Bambi. She said the obvious part when his mum dies. Travelling all the way home on a bus with streaks of mascara down her face. Thank <laughs> you to my then three, then three children for not telling me. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't cry, but I got a lump in my throat when Jojo finds his mother hanging in Jojo Rabbit. Oh, oh yeah. Didn't make me cry, but I but I had a I had a well in the back of my throat. I was like, you know, that, that hard swallow. Helen Blair, ghost, the end, everything when she says ditto. Yeah. I mean, that's just the ultimate payoff of like the whole like ditto exchange that when it gets to the end, it's that like joyous tears with the response of it. Uh, Green Mile as above. The notebook. Les Miserables at various points. <laughs> and again, back to the old gag. It's like I cried when I realized how much time I'd wasted on that film. Um, <laughs> a Star is Born again. The Gallagher right. and Cooper version. Uh, she cries just listening to the soundtrack too. She knows that these others, as it doesn't take much for to make her cry, and it doesn't take me much. I think this is something to no, do. I'm pretty much my the same. family. Uh, Will Lowley, another one for Toy Story three. First time around when they're about to go in the incinerator, even though you low key yeah. know that it's not going to happen for a moment. You're you not lost sure. In the nostalgia of it all, you're and not you feel sure. that all that is fading away. Oh yeah, it's so well played that you, you kind of think you kind of know. It's not going to happen, are they? They're not going to do this. And then it gets closer and closer. Like, they're really going to do this? And you just get lost in it. Beautifully done moment. Benjamin Newton, still yet to find one. Doesn't cry at films. Ooh, That's fair enough. There's a challenge. We'll, we'll let you off. I mean, uh, we'll we'll now go seeking out the most weepy films and force Benjamin Newton to watch them all. <laughs> Did anyone cry when Chuck Nolan, the character out of Castaway, played by Tom Hanks, loses his companion Wilson. No, Wilson. <laughs> uh, okay. No one's mentioned uh, that one. Uh, for me, it's, it's it's a wonderful life. Always sets me off. Coco yeah. from Pixar always reduces me to tears. I've watched that a few times now, and each time I know it's happening by the end. I know she. I know she's going to start singing, and you realise, oh, that's what it was all about in the end. Uh, still gets me pixar just have a knack of doing it i i uh, i had a little weep this week to the last episode of shrinking when oh, yeah. he gives the speech at the, at the wedding uh, and that got me uh i had a little uh, a little well on that one i'm quite easy to set off there's i get so invested into the films and so emotionally attached that i'll either cry happy tears of joy or i'll blub like an absolute maniac at sad moments one that i do want to definitely throw in is i love you man Oh, thank uh, you. Paul, the Paul oh, Rudd so. film. Um, really? It's just a pure... Oh, it's it's a pure, beautiful bromance friendship. And it's when it comes... By the time it gets to that final scene, when after they'd gone their separate ways and had the fallout, and then he races to the races to the wedding to go and become the best man, and then they stand in front of each other and start doing their jokey little, like, I love you, machacho. And you just, like, start laughing. And then it just gets to the... I love you, man. And it's the sincerity on it. And that's it. I break. Uh, I'm, I'm going to close this off with the first time I heard Sam Wilson say on your left. Oh, in Avengers Endgame. Yeah. And realize that everyone who perished in Infinity War, they were on their way back and ready to fight. Yeah. Boom. That's a good choice. So a great response this week. I'm very happy to hear some of those, some, some phenomenal responses. And, and feel free to cry at will 
in any cinema. That's what cinemas are there for. Shared experience. We all weep together. And now it's time for this week's social challenge. Give it a lot of thought. I don't think it'll be as strong as last week's, but here we go. We've entered into the blockbuster season um, pretty heavily with uh, Super Mario Brothers absolutely dominating at the box office. We've got Guardians 3, which has just landed. So we're really scratching the surface of some of the big films to expect throughout the summer uh, and for the rest of the year. So what films still to come are you absolutely giddy for? What can't you wait to get in line, get your ticket, sit there and watch? So let us know via our socials. Andy, how can people reach out to us? You can get in touch with us via most social channels, Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon, Instagram. I'm actually quite prominent on Facebook at the moment. I've been posting a lot of my early hours of the mornings, random thoughts to do with film stuff on there recently. I've not done this much activity on Facebook for a while. But yeah, feel free to drop us over there. Or you can drop us an email, podcast at filmfile.uk. We look forward to reading out your responses next week. So let's talk about this week's show. What have we got for you on the film file? Well, of course, we've got all the banter, all the chat. We've got a deep dive into Warren Beatty's interesting take on comic book movies. Yes, we'll be talking about Dick Tracy. We've got reviews, which include Ip Man, The Awakening, Rye Lane, and some small film about Guardians of the Galaxy, a third yeah. part of this trilogy. Andy and I will <laughs> both be discussing Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3. But before any of that, here's the news, and here is the box office. We do know that Super Mario has been in pole position for the last few weeks, but are a certain Guardians of the Galaxy winging their way to take over? From that number one position andy well guardians of the galaxy volume three obviously went straight to the top of the worldwide box offices in the us in at number one with 118 million taken over this weekend which includes the preview days leading up to the friday super mario brothers holds into second place taking 18.6 million this weekend evil dead rises in third place with 5.9 million are you there god it's me margaret comes in at fourth with 3.2 million and love again enters into fifth place with 2.4 million here in the uk guardians of the galaxy straight in at number one 9.23 million going up to 12.08 million if you include the wednesday thursday previews super mario brothers in second place taking another 1.3 million it's now up to just under 50 million in the uk box office alone evil dead rise 493,000. Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry, 335,000 this weekend. And John Wick, Chapter 4, still holding into the top five with 195,000 taken this weekend. Guardians' total worldwide box office for its opening weekend is 289 million. A very strong start for the latest Marvel entry, but it's all going to be about week two to see what happens there. Super Mario Brothers is now up to 1.15 billion. And whilst it's slowed down, it's still got some strong legs to keep going for another few weeks. It is worth noting with the figures that Guardians has done for the opening weekend that those figures do include two days of Wednesday, Thursday previews on top of them. So that is skewed box office opening weekend figures. Now, it's been interesting seeing some of the, let me say, more denial kind of reporting from some websites out there. Deadline, for example, who I normally expect better from basically said but those people saying superhero fatigue should shut up yeah let's wait until week two shall we before we um, start telling people to shut up because we don't know how it's going to go and compared its box office opening saying 
it's about the same as what Spider-Man of 2002 was. So that's quite good. Adjust for inflation, that's significantly bad. Let's not be in denial here. We love the, we love the Marvel films. We're invested in them. And, you know, I work within this industry. We can't start saying this is a success yet. We need to see whether it has a drop-off. I'd love that the word of mouth, the word of mouth for Guardians has been really good. And hopefully that will generate a lower drop-off next week. If we can get between a 40 and 50% drop-off, that will bode well for this, doing really solid figures by the end. But if it ends up being that Marvel and general superhero blockbuster 68% drop-off that we've been getting for the past year, it's not going to be good. It's not had the strongest opening. It's had the weakest opening of the three Guardians films so far. It was never going to be a huge flyer because the, the previous two films finished around about the 800 million mark worldwide. But if this finishes less than 700 million, I think there's going to be a lot of questions. We shall uh, we shall discuss this in detail on next week's show. Yeah, we'll be watching very carefully. Let's get into some news. Well, the big news this week, as we discussed last week, it was on the horizon and it's definitely taken place now. The Writers Guild of America are now striking. Many productions have shut down. Planned projects are on hold as the strike has hit. Various concerns within the like fair treatment and fair pay of writers are part of the reason for this, including the use of new technologies from streaming to movies and movies to streaming or changing a film to a limited run TV series, causing complications in contracts and the use of AI, which is a key aspect of the concerns with the recent month stories of studios wishing to use AI to generate starter scripts for ideas, which writers then refine. And the WGA, as we reported a couple of months ago, put out rulings on the use of AI. But obviously, the world that we're in now means that consideration has to be made on fair use of all tech without damaging right to pay. Now, Zaslav's response yesterday was abhorrent that, oh, it'll, they'll come to an agreement with us as because writers love to write. So they just want to get back to work. Yeah, they love to pay the bills as well and raise families. Yes, they like to eat. So, yeah, eat the houses they, go on holiday. It, it's just abhorrent to have Christmas. that kind of attitude. Um, some productions are so far into shooting that they're continuing and provisions were put in place. Lord of the Rings Rings of Power, for example, is continuing to shoot. It has two weeks left of shooting. So they'd already planned contingencies that if the showrunners and writers aren't involved, the UK-based production crew will finish off using just the written details that are there. They're so confident that the scripts are fine-tuned that they don't they can manage to finish off the last two weeks rather than putting everything on hold and hoping they can get everyone back next year. Also, House of the Dragon won't be affected. They reckon that the scripts are so polished that they can do it as as necessary. Um, if they need to do pickups, they will wait until the strike's over and then do pickups then. Uh, Rumbling suggests that other guilds the Directors Guild, for example, might also be looking at measures which, if not accepted, may lead to strikes for similar reasons to the writers, that the advances in technology are making things a bit different of an environment to work in. This is going to be something ongoing for the next few weeks, at least. Last time yeah. there was a writer's strike, it was just under three months it ran for, yes. and it impacted on and the industry. a massive, massive way. impact. You think about uh, Quantum of Solace, yeah. for instance. Quantum of Solace entered into production without a, finished script. a fully realised script. In fact, the director and Daniel Craig were working on the script, yeah, which may explain a lot for that film. We do know that Blade, Blade, <laughs> is it ever I'm, going to happen? I'm convinced it's not, never going to happen. It's vaporware. It's cursed. <laughs> uh, that's shut down due to the strike. Uh, Deadpool 3, Thunderbolts and Fantastic Four, however, for now, 
Yeah. Rumour has it that they're still on track, but of course this is going to hit hard. The community movie might be, might be delayed. Stranger Things has been confirmed to be put on hold until the end of the strike. Late night talk shows, which obviously need topical content, they've all shut down. So Jimmy Kimmel, The Late yeah. Show, Last Week Tonight, Real Time, cease production until it's all over because you can't do those shows without a writing team. Same with Saturday Night Live. Abbott Elementary is shut down, Big Mouth, Yellow Jackets, Cobra Kai. There's quite a lot of impact already across the industry. Other industry professionals have shown support for the writers, turning down opportunities at live TV events. The MTV Awards this weekend isn't going out live because they're not taking any risks. So they're recording it in advance and then edited it down because they're expecting there to be some pushback and they're struggling to find the celebrities to stand up and give out the awards. Jamie Lee Curtis in particular was supposed to be giving out some awards and she's refu like refuses to step over the picket lines outside there and said that the Writers Guild needs and deserves my support and I won't cross it. So kudos to her. It's great to see all the industry rallying around it. I know that the WGA gave out a statement to the Writers Guild of the UK as well saying, whilst you guys aren't striking, please support what we're doing. Basically, if you're offered a script and you go, hang on, this is for an American production, refuse it. Everyone, I think everyone in general, except for the big studio execs, are on the side of the writers here. Let's hope everyone gets around the table and sorts this out, because it will have a major impact on all the films, all the TV series that we like. It only does harm to the industry. But writers' paychecks have gone down and down because they used to be paid yeah. by residuals on DVDs and Blu-rays. And, of course, that's not a thing. So the last time there was a confrontation about this was about streaming rights. Yep. Uh, it's an ever-changing industry. And the writer has to the writers survive by those residuals being taken care of when their work, which is a starting point for a lot of projects, is basically shunned. So good luck to everybody. Good luck to the Writers Guild. Uh, as a British Writers Guild, uh, I refuse now to do any American movies. Mm -hmm. Oh, hang on, did not offer me any. <laughs> Moving on. There'll be more news on the writers' strike over the next few weeks as developments happen. One of the impacts means that all the rest of the news that we talk about today, well, it might end up next week. We, we end up reporting that they get cancelled because this is going. All of these things that we've got coming up are now going to be under threat from how long the writer strike goes on for. But let's start with an exciting news: Babylon okay. Five animated movie. Oh yes, confirmed by J.M. Straczynski this week. Not only confirmed to be happening, confirmed it's happened. It's already done. It's in the can, as Zack Snyder would say. Except this time, it really is finished. Yeah. Now we talked about a possible reboot of Babylon 5 for some time. It had been mm. talked about, that people had mentioned it. Who knew, clearly not us, that there was a movie on the way and that it was um, uh, that it was animated. Yep. Um, he dubs this as classic Babylon 5, so it's going to be using the characters that we've grown to love, which means that voice actors can replace the sadly departed ones who've passed over um, since the series aired. Uh, he says it'll be a heartfelt, non-stop, ton of fun love letter to the fans. This is his way of like re reigniting the flames of passion that us Babylon 5 fans have. He's also confirmed that this is not in any way, shape or form replacing his planned reboot live action version this is just an additional thing but the animated sector of it being completely done if it's successful he'd love to do more animated ones to tell the characters the old stories whilst working on the whole new take i'm so excited i mean his interaction yes. with his fans on online anyway is great uh, yeah he's always like answered questions he's always engaged with people and 
he managed to keep this secret. God bless him. He he kept it secret so he could reveal it and go. It's not just going to be out there sometime. It's ready. For those who don't remember Babylon Five, uh, it's worth checking out. It was a five-season, uh, fairly low-budget show that ran for 110 episodes, and there were several TV movies. The vast majority of the series was written by Straczynski. In fact, Neil Gaiman mm. wrote an episode for it, and it featured a, a five-mile-long space station, Babylon 5, in, in neutral space, a kind of a port of call for diplomats, uh, travelers, smugglers, corporate explorers, aliens, uh, at a time when the galaxy is kind of in an easy place. Mm. and. It was a fantastic series, incredibly detailed, incredibly well thought through, very mature. It ran opposite kind of Deep Space Nine when it came out. And I always thought this was, even though I like Deep Space Nine, this was the superior series yeah. because it was very bold it was in, its, in its vision. If you watch the first series, there'll be a lot of episodes in the first season that you watch for the first time and you think, what was the relevance of that? Eh, that was just a one-off episode. Oh, just like that, that wasn't important to anything. But then once you watch the whole thing, when you go back to watch the first season, you realize the detail in every episode that sets up events that don't actually take place until the third season. It is so intricate and the characters are so well fleshed out that, that there's no such thing as a good guy and a bad guy. Yeah, that's Everyone right. is, an, is an element of grey. And there's, yeah, well, except for obviously the shadows themselves who are genuinely terrifying evil. Um, and the design of the ships, I love every bit of design work within this whole show. And I'm, I'm so excited to see it coming back. Check it out. Try and find it if you've not seen it. And for those who do know what we're talking about, we feel your anticipation. So Henry Cavill, Jake Gyllenhaal, Isaac Gonzalez are all on board for Guy Ritchie's next film. It's a so far uh, untitled uh, action thriller. Uh, reportedly follows two extraction specialists who must plan an escape path for a high-level female negotiator. Uh, Richie, who wrote the script and will produce it alongside Ivan Atkinson, is aiming to kick off filming in September of this year. I know that his films have become quite generic, but I still look forward to a Guy Ritchie film. I love the vibe that he brings to films. And Cavill and Gyllenhaal alone are enough to make me sit up and take notice of this one, because if, if he can do with them and get them playing such weirdly different characters as to what he's done with Hugh Grant in recent years, then yeah. I'm all for it. And Richie's trademark humour, which we saw in films like The Gentleman and The Man from Uncle, where he last worked with Cavill. I'm fine with the pairing between those two again. Um, Zack Snyder. Okay, we've got some Zack Snyder news. Yeah, but thankfully it's nothing to do with uh, that aspect of it. His animation that he had planned, Twilight of the Gods, for Netflix, which was going to be adapting Norse mythological aspects, um, he's now got an animation studio. The Oscar-nominated Zillion Animation are going to be working alongside him. Uh, they gave us Chippendale Park Life. Oh, enjoy Chippendale. Uh, it's going to be a 2D animated action epic series, Twilight of the Gods. The voice cast for it, John Noble as Odin, Pilo Asbeck as Thor, Sylvia Hoax as Sigrid, Patterson Joseph as Lo Loki, Raoul Coley as Egil, Lauren Cohen as Inge. Additional voices, Corey Stoll, Jamie Chung, Christoph Hivel, Stuart Martin, Peter Stormer, like Peter Stormer, very distinctive character actor, Jamie Clayton, and Jessica Henwick is also believed to be on board. So it's great names within there. I do like Norse mythology. I just hope that Snyder doesn't over Snyder, Snyder it. it. Yes. If he can do with this what he did with 300, I'd be fine. And because it's animated format, someone else is going to be tackling a lot of the visual flair of it. So let's see. 
uh, Snyder's going to co-create and he directs two episodes of it and then other directors will take over from there. So take this with a huge pinch of salt, but apparently in the last few hours, Fantastic Four has cast its Reed Richards in Adam Driver. Now, no full confirmation on this. Uh, we'll let you know when we know because Margot Robbie has also been approached to play Sue Storm, which feels a little bit like fan casting at its best, but reportedly... Adam Driver has accepted the role of Reed Richards. We'll keep you plugged in. Sticking with Marvel, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse has been confirmed will feature an appearance from the spectacular Spider-Man. And it's also reported this is going to be one of the longest animated films ever. Yeah, and considering that this is part one of a two-part story, for it to be one of the longest ones, it makes you wonder how long the second part's going to be. And together, are they going to be epic? I am so excited. It's it's so close to us as well. It's right on our doorstep. And yeah, I'm going to be happy. Because if it can have a good flow to it, I'm more than happy for it to take as long as it wants to tell the story. Let's just sit back and wait now. Alien, Sidney Chandler from Don't Worry But Darling and Pistol is the first person to be cast in Noah Hawley's Alien TV series. She's signed up to play one of the leads, but we don't know any details as of yet as to what lead it is. We do know that it maintains the continuity of the film series, so it isn't a remake. And early word last year from FX CEO John Langreth suggested it was going to be set before Ripley's tale in our not-too-distant future, approximately 70 years from now. Uh, to give some groundwork on it, Prometheus is set in 2089, Covenant 2104, and Alien 2122. And we do know that Noah Hawley's show will be set on earth so it, it's going to be all the rise of uh, wayland yutani isn't it it sounds like it. i mean it's 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 going to be a tv series so you can't just feature an alien yeah over a, a, a 10 episode series uh talking of tv series and this is again just a rumor and apparently it's in the works for disney plus in the same way that alien and predator uh, have uh, come to the smaller screen but a new planet of the apes tv series is apparently in the works yeah i saw that rumor um i'm waiting until it becomes more than a rumor but i'm interested well you know last year i was a huge fan of andor did you ever get into it did you <laughs> go back and still revisit need, it still need to go back and revisit it well there's been talk about what the plans are for the andor uh finale but it appears the three episodes towards the end will cover three days before the events of rogue one i loved andor i thought it was it gave us something that uh, a lot of Star Wars fans wanted, which is the same but different in a very different way. And it also had something to say about the idea of rebellion, that it's not always pretty, even though it might be in a distant galaxy far, far away. Uh, Doctor Who news. Mindhunter, Glee, Knock at the Cabin and Hamilton star Jonathan Groff has reportedly been cast as a key guest star in the new Shooty Gatwa-led series of Doctor Who. Uh, Russell T Davis has said in his statement, it's an incredible coup. Great honour to get such a huge star striding onto our set. Strap on your space boots. This is going to be a blast. And Groff has said in his own statement, I'm thrilled to jump into the extraordinary mind of Russell T Davis and watch the incredible Shooty Gatwa soar in this iconic role. Are we getting a musical episode, do you reckon? <laughs> well, I mean, he was so good. Mindhunter is, is one of the great series ever uh, that, that deserves to have a third season. And he was, he was stunning in it, uh, Jonathan Groff. Uh, awesome in Hamilton, the standout performance in Hamilton for me. It just shows where that Disney money's going. Yeah, but you know we've got Neil Patrick Harris coming up, who will probably reprise his role. We're, we're going to get a we're going to get a musical episode, and I'm all for it because every, <laughs> we'll every time genre shows have tackled like 
these bizarre concepts. It's always strangely worked. So I am absolutely all for it. But yet, the Disney money is clearly helping the show be able to snag a lot bigger names and the production values hopefully will be improved. I'm getting very excited for this uh, new wave of Doctor Who. Uh, what I'm not excited for, Mamma Mia musical creator Judy Kramer has indicated that a third film based on the best-selling stage production is in the early stages of production. In an interview with Deadline, Kramer says nothing's official, but a third film is in very early development with the previous film stars Meryl Streep and Christine Baranski eyed to return. Kramer says there's a story there. There wasn't even a story there in the first two. And I do think Meryl should come back. <laughs> it's not for me. I'm sorry. No. It's, uh, you know what? My other half loves it. And, and I get it. I've never liked ABBA. And I know to some that is, is absolute sacrilege. Never never got ABBA. But no, it's just not for me. Hey, good luck. There, there's an audience out there and an audience will enjoy it. But it's this particular geek isn't me now you know how a few weeks ago i said that nostalgia tapping is likely the future and legacy green mm. legacy sequels will be greenlit because maverick did so well and the nostalgic aspects of super mario etc well a sequel to cliffhanger the 1993 stallone starring film is now set to be helmed by rick roman woe who gave us greenland which was pretty good yeah we enjoyed greenland way beyond expectation for greenland and uh, it certainly delivered and stallone is set to return but he's not expected to be the main protagonist where new leading actor is being sought for what is inevitably just going to be someone stuck on the side of a cliff and someone trying to rescue them. In a statement, the director has said, growing up with the biggest action films of the 80s and 90s, working on many of them myself, Cliffhanger was by far one of my favourite spectacles. To be at the helm of the next chapter, scaling the Italian Alps with the legend himself, Sylvester Stallone, is a dream come true. It's going to be a great challenge and a blast taking this franchise to new heights. Ha, see what he did there. A responsibility I don't Ooh, take yeah, lightly. I quite like Cliffhanger. I think we might have to deep dive Cliffhanger at some point. Yeah, I'll add it to uh, episode 370. Yeah. Uh, Bad Boys 4, Ian Grufford has joined the cast of the Smith & Lovins 4 film. Uh, the directors of the last film, Adil El Arby and Bilal Falar, are returning to direct. And others from the third film are going to reprise their roles, such as Vanessa Hudgens, Alexander Ludwig, and Paola Nunes. Griffith is playing Lockwood, a high-profile attorney running for election in the film. The script is un under it is in a locked box somewhere. No one's allowed to read it. I'm sure that it'll just involve lots of like whippy wisecracks between Lawrence and Smith and unnecessary <laughs> car chases. But, you know, who am I to judge a bad boy's film in advance? Blair Witch, Oliver Park, who gave us the offering, has been hired to direct a new Blair Witch film, which is targeting a late... Okay, that's shoot. something that doesn't feel as though it needs to go back to. Yeah, they, they tried it with that Blur Witch film a few years ago, which I thought did an admirable job. But it, it... Yes, yeah, and it certainly was better than the um, the second Blur Witch movie. Yes, but it, it doesn't feel that there's much to really do with that franchise without it just being repetitive. The untitled Formula One film that Brad Pitt's going to be starring in that's going to be directed by Joseph Kaczynski. We like Kaczynski. Who'll have all the money now after Top Gun Maverick. Yeah do anything you want well absolutely anything brad pitt has been confirmed to be doing a lot of the driving scenes himself including driving almost formula one style cars at points must be exciting for him and kerry condon who is marvelous in banshees of inner Sharon, has been cast alongside him it's still an untitled film pitt stars as a racer who comes out of retirement to mentor a young driver jerry Bruckheimer is producing i've got this on the radar i am looking forward to it taiki watiti is directing clara and the sun an adaptation of the uh sci-fi story of the same name which follows clara a robot girl created to prevent teenagers from becoming lonely this is a story how she tries to save a family of humans 
she lives with from heartbreak. But of course, he's also got his long gestating Star Wars film, a new Flash Gordon adaptation, etc., etc. Before he gets around to that. Yeah, very busy man. So there's been some great trailer drops this week. There has. You're going to start with uh, feeling the need for speed, aren't you? Oh, I felt the need for speed watching the Gran Turismo trailer. Great trailer. It, it's more more sold the film to me. This, the film is going to be the story of someone who is a video gamer, does well on the racing tournaments in the Vi Gran Turismo game series, enters the GT Academy and goes on to success as an actual on-track racing driver. And it's interesting seeing responses online from people with this one saying, that's unfeasible. What a ridiculous story. No, it happened. <laughs> this was based on a real life story. <laughs> it looks vibrant. It looks really good. And the cast looked great in it. It sold the film completely to me. When they announced Gran Turismo as a, as a film, everyone went, really? A just a generic racing game as a film. But the reason is the story of someone who is a player of the games who became a professional racing driver and how that the game basically inspired them to go down that avenue. Looking forward to it. We had the trailer drop for the Equalizer 3. I was a big fan of, of the second Equalizer. I thought the first one was okay. Second one I thought was really, really good. Uh, it seems to be pretty much the same. Interestingly enough, that uh, it's the return pairing of Denzel Washington and Dakota Fanning. But, of course, the big one for us geeks over this end of the pond. Dune 2. Yes, in all of its magnificence. Lots of sand, sandworms. A lot of sand. Uh, the, the trailer, there was a lot of focus around his riding his first sandworm, his taming his first sandworm. And the look I remember riding my first sandworm. <laughs> and the, re the reactions from those who witness it, because anyone who knows the books knows how important the one that he actually commands is. I am so in for this film. It looks visually beautiful. Again, there's little glimpses of the newer members of the cast in there with no detail on what the story is, because this is a this is the first trailer. This is the one to make all the fans go, ooh. The next trailer will give a bit more detail for the people who aren't sure what's happening. But boy, I am so excited for this. Oh, the end of Are the you there for it, Andy? Are you in? I am going to actually bury myself in sand until this film comes out. That's how, how much I need this film in my life. Great trailer, and We've been waiting for this trailer for a while. We're hitting that time of year that all those hotly anticipated trailers are starting to come out. And on the subject of expectation, Mortal Kombat news. Okay. <laughs> I, I didn't realise there was an expectation for oh, it is a, for me. a Mortal Kombat movie. You know how much I But I, I know which story you're going with. Whilst I would have loved someone like Scott Adkins to be cast in this part, the report this week has it that Carla Urban is entering Mortal Kombat 2 as Johnny Cage. Uh, Johnny Cage in the games and previous adaptations is a character who's a glorious, vain Hollywood action movie star with an extensive martial arts background. Not someone who you'd normally associate with Carl Urban. So I'm interested in what approach they're going to take for it. Carl Urban is great on everything that he enters. He always brings something to every role. So whilst it wasn't wasn't a it wasn't a choice that would have come through in my top 100 names. It's very much intrigued me. I, I know you've got zero interest in Mortal Kombat. <laughs> yeah, I, it's Mortal Kombat. Yeah, I, I love the game. I love the games back in the day. But the movies, I've not even seen the last remake. I started watching it. I've got to be honest. I think I preferred the Paul Anderson version. Well, that's because yeah, that's, that's, that's perfection. Sacrilege. No, that's perfection. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> Every Mortal Kombat fan says that the Paul Anderson version is perfect. Well, okay, then I'm all right. I'm in good company. Yes. And that's this week's The News. Still with us, still with the film file. Awesome. 
But rumour has it, well, actually not rumour, some particularly clever AI is spotting the fact that some of you still haven't subscribed to the show. All we have to do is either have you destroyed by this AI or simply Andy, all they have to do is get involved, don't they? Yeah, it's it's very easy to subscribe to the show and make sure that you never miss an episode. Whatever service you're listening to on the moment, there should be a little, a li- either a plus icon or a subscribe icon or a tick icon. Depending on what one it is, it can be anything, but you know what to do. Just click that button, just subscribe, and that way, every Wednesday, shall we say? Hopefully. <laughs> that the episode drops it'll automatically be pushed through to you. It's dead easy. Um, In addition, feel free to give us a a like. Feel free to give us a review. Get subscribing. Get listening. Get involved. And what we'd also like you to do is, if you are a fan of the show, is recommend us to other people because when we get better listening figures, we'll be able to use things like adverts and be able to do much, 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 much more. We've got some great plans for the film file and we'd like you to be part of that journey. And I think it's now time to call off the killer AI. <laughs> Wait a minute, this button doesn't work. I'm pressing it. Nothing's happening. Oh, bugger. <laughs> so let's get into this week's deep dive. Dive, dive, dive. This week's deep dive is a deep dive into the 1990 comic book adaptation of a 1930s comic strip of a character of the same name based on the character created by Chester Gould in a film produced by Warren Beatty, directed by Warren Beatty and starring Warren Beatty. And that film is Dick Tracy. His name is Big Boy Caprice. There was one Napoleon, one Washington, one me. He's a big time gangster out to get control. I got the gun. Get revenge. Not the bad, Big Boy, not the bad. Get the girl. Everything he owns, I own. And there's only one man who can stop him. Who said that? Dick Tracy calling Dick Tracy. Now Big Boy is getting a taste of the law. From the world's greatest detective. You're under arrest. Warren Beatty is Dick Tracy rated PG. If you've not seen Dick Tracy, it's a very, very simple plot. This is a stylized film adaptation of uh, a comic book, which was the initial run of comic book interest after the release of Tim Burton's Batman, based on the legendary police detective Dick Tracy, who takes on the gangster boss, Big Boy Caprice, and his band of menacing mobsters, played under so much latex by some of the most famous names Mm. in Hollywood. This was a film that people kind of liked rather than loved. I think the big draw for it was the relationship between the character Breathless Mahoney, played by Madonna, who was probably the biggest, or if not one of the biggest, music stars in the world. Warren Beatty had already proved his directing chops with various other films, including the marvellous Heaven Can Wait, and the passion project, though much maligned, but very good, Reds. Mm. So. Did this film work? It had been in development for many, many years. There'd been previously a Dick Tracy TV series back in the 50s. The character hadn't really traveled across the world and was a staple of American pop culture. It was a bit of a gamble. Was it a gamble that paid off? I was introduced to Dick Tracy through the reruns of the 1960s animated show that used to... Oh yeah, I forgot about that one. Yeah. I used to love watching that. It used to play on, I think it was ITV over the summer period. There was something about it that just drew me in. And then I caught a few of the serialised offerings, which had been made like through the decades earlier. But by the time that the film came out in 1990, it had been so many years since my 
eight-year-old self used to watch these things on TV that I'd kind of forgotten about it. But there was something nostalgic at the back of my mind, which made me a bit interested. On the run-up to it coming out, there was a deluxe comic book that did a prequel leading up to the story of the movie that appeared in my local shop on its uh, comic Yeah, do, uh, drawn by the great Kyle Baker. Yeah. If I remember correctly. And I remember just going, oh, pick that up. Read the first issue and was like, oh, this is intriguing. Got the second issue. And it gave you the backstory of like Breathless and Big Boy and Mumbles and you know, built the personalities up in the comic book format. So by the time the film came out, I was biting at the bit to get and see this. And for me, it delivered. It delivered because it, it delivered Dick Tracy as Dick Tracy should be for good and for bad. For, for those who don't know who Dick Tracy is, he's a, a, a square jawed. Uh, hard-hitting, fast-shooting, super-police detective. Always sports a, a yellow overcoat and a fedora. He has a reputation of being the good guy, the archetypical great cop. There's a slight kind of fantasy element of the fact that he has a, a radio wristwatch, which... Was so futuristic at the time, wasn't it? That was, was so futuristic. <laughs> uh, his lead villain was Big Boy Caprice. His love interest was split between Breathless Mahoney and, and Tess Trueheart. And it was a staple of a certain nostalgia comic book era. Yeah. But not in the same way that you would say Superman or Batman is. Very much restricted to an American audience. It was based upon Elliot Ness. That's Chester yes, Gould's got right. the idea for the character and just daubed him with like a bright yellow long trench coat to make him stand out against this dark, murky world. And that bright yellow is very significant to the film. And that's the element that Beatty picked up on because yeah. all the film is in primary colours. Yeah, I think he only used uh, five colours in total. And so all the production design had to work around those five colours. So costumes, set dressings, everything had to be part of that because he wanted to replicate the, the comic book feel. He wanted it to feel like it was literally lifted from the pages. The, the big names that, you, you know, you mentioned the loads of big names who are playing the characters because all the crime bosses are grotesques. And so in order to convey it, they're all got heavy prosthetics to give them like flat heads or big bulging faces, tiny faces inside like giant cheeks. Every one of them got nicknames, flat top, mumbles, numbers, the brow, rodent, shoulders, prune face. And then you bury names such as Mandy Patinkin. Henry Silver, Dick Van Dyke, Kathy Bates, Paul Savino, William Forsyth, James Kahn, Catherine O'Hara, Dustin Hoffman, Dustin Hoffman and yeah. Al Pacino. And you just think, you've got these names and you can't recognise half of these people. Mandy Patinkin doesn't wear any prosthetics. He's just playing the piano player who kind of helps along the way. He's one of the Blanks minions, yeah. isn't he? But a load of the cast are completely unrecognisable. They could have put anyone in there. It's only at times that you can see Pacino doing his like complete over the top acting that it's like, that's Pacino. Hoffman in particular, as Mumbles, no, no idea that that was, that was Hoffman at all. If I didn't know from like reading that he played the character, I would not have put him into that role. But, but that was the strength really of having BT on as director because basically. He called in favours. He oh, yeah. called in the people, uh, his peers. I mean, he'd worked with a lot of these actors. I mean, and he is a great cast. I mean, the, the people you mentioned, Seymour Casal, the great Michael J. Pollard, Dick Van Dyke, Kathy Bates, Glenn Headley, an, an amazing all-star cast. I mean, this is one of those last films, really, a, a little bit like like uh, Richard Donner's Superman, that every character 
is played by somebody who's recognisable. BT himself plays the square-jawed lead exactly as the pages play him. There's no joking or quips here. It's a no-nonsense approach. The humour comes from the mob bosses usually around him, especially Mumbles. Mumbles in his interrogations is hilarious because you can't understand half the stuff that he's saying, but he's getting audibly frustrated that nobody can understand what he's, he's saying. And it adds a bit of light humour. Madonna, when she was cast, it, you know, it raised some eyebrows at the time. It was like, really? Madonna in a big film? But I think she delivers a really good Breathless Mahoney, a femme fatale from start yeah. to finish. Didn't didn't quite get the chemist any chemistry between her and Beatty, but I think that kind of worked. Despite the fact that they were seeing each other at the time yeah, as well. I mean, if if you can't get your natural relationship to convey on screen, then something's not right. But it kind of works because she's the girl who wants him, but he doesn't want her. And so the lack of chemistry on screen doesn't upset the balance. But one character that does work in this is the score. Danny Elfman, if Danny I remember Elfman, correctly. Who brought in Oingo Boingo to help create something a bit fresh and unique. I mean, Dick Tracy had been in development for many, many years. As I said before, there'd been serials, there'd been a TV series, the animated series, there'd been movies back in the 30s. Mm. BT had always been a big, big fan. He'd had a concept for Dick Tracy way back in 1975, but at that time, uh, the film rights were all over the place. Uh, and after he unsuccessfully tried pitching uh, Dick Tracy to various studios the film rights were finally picked up and tom mankowitz was under negotiations to write the script based on his previous success with superman that fell through there were numerous directors in line steven spielberg would offer the job at one point clint eastwood john landis martin scorsese had been talked about richard benjamin uh, but eventually uh, it landed with walter hill who envisaged the film as a much more darker, much more violent film than what BT had in mind. Stars that were considered for the role were Harrison Ford, Richard Gere, Tom Selleck, Mel Gibson, basically any leading man that you could think of in that particular era. But it was BT. BT was always a fan and, and shepherded the project. And his reputation as a director, especially after the noticeably acclaimed Reds, mm didn't really sit well with with Disney. And as a result, BT and Disney reached a, a contracted agreement where any budget overruns on Dick Tracy would be deducted from BT's final fee as producer, director and star. And so it landed with Disney and their touchstone pictures and away it went. It was a moderate success at the box office. It also uh, was nominated for quite a few awards, picking up a few of the technical awards. It's a far from perfect film. The stoic approach does make it feel flat and two-dimensional at times. If you compare this to modern comic book films, this is hard to appreciate. Dick Tracy was never supposed to be a wisecracking character, but sometimes you get the feel of watching this that maybe it needed to take itself a little less seriously. Yeah. I mean, it, it looks amazing. Yeah. It's it's beautifully art designed. It's stylish. It's incredibly unique. It plays to its comic book origins in a way that, that a lot of films don't. The, probably the only thing I can think of was maybe Ang Lee's Hulk, which yeah. featured sort of uh, panels. But there's not much of a story. It's it, it's a little bit thin. And the artificial world of it wins over the very slight script. It also suffers from that very 80s to 90s blockbuster thing of inserting a child actor into the lineup, which gives us Charlie Cosmo as the kid who, by the end of the film, ends up adopting the name Dick Tracy Jr. because reasons. It's one of the tropes of this era of films that always annoys me when you've got like an obnoxiously hyper-intelligent kid helping the case. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of things like Last Action Hero, that kind yeah. of 
kid influence. Uh, I mean, Beatty was 52 when he made the movie and was getting on a bit. There are lots of similarities in, in sort of the marketing and the design with Burton's Batman, which was to some extent the beginning of the comic book phases that we're still in to this day. But I think Batman had a lot more going on. There's a much more of a depth to Batman than there is to Dick Tracy. And uh, even though they're both visually knockout looking movies, it's the fact that you don't really invest with Tracy in the same way that you invest with, with Batman. Uh, and then therefore, I think the film didn't really find an audience outside of the US markets and therefore didn't get to the point where there was going to be a successful franchise. But that hasn't stopped BT from holding onto the rights over the years in order as part of the retaining the rights where you've got to release something. He's been doing his uh, little interviews in character. That's right. As long as he makes something to do with Dick Tracy, every couple of years, he retains the rights. And on his most recent one, which we reported on in the news back end of last year, he actually did a very meta Dick Tracy's being interviewed, but so is Warren Beatty at the same time. And he actually like Dick Tracy actually complains that he doesn't feel that the representation of him in the 90s film was done very well by Beatty. And it's like, okay, this is getting very meta and suggests that maybe someone younger needs to play the character. So Beatty is still wanting to bring Dick Tracy back. I'm not sure that the cinema world is quite ready for a Dick Tracy. I enjoy this film. I have appreciation for it. And I think it's an interesting film for people to check out who've never seen it. Just to see the evolution of comic book movies into films post-Batman. Because the 90s, there was a lot of experimentation with a lot of comic book properties getting brought. And this brings a different kind of approach and a very unique kind of approach. I think if Dick Tracy comes back for a modern audience, it should be as a Netflix TV series. Yeah, I can't see it working on the big screen. I don't think there's an audience now who actually recognizes no. Dick Tracy. And this is always the problem. And we've talked about this many times with that uh, element of nostalgia. There are certain characters, certain IP that a certain audience, certain generation, remember, would love to do something with it. I think Flash Gordon has, mm -hmm. a, has a similar problem. Yeah. Book Rogers will, will always have a, a similar problem that trying to work them into a modern audience. Now, if uh, there was a good looking Netflix series and it had the ability to sort of transcend itself in the same aesthetics that the movie did, then maybe you could go out on a limb and do something very, very different with it that is, is going to set it aside. But playing off the name of Dick Tracy, it, it doesn't work. It's like bringing Bulldog Drummond back yep. to a, a UK audience and expecting them to go, yeah, I'll flock to that. Yeah. Who's Bulldog Drummond? I think we both realise it's an interesting film. It mm. has It has issues. It's definitely a, a film of its time, uh, that sort of late 80s, early 90s style of filmmaking. I think Beatty's very good in it. I think Al Pacino is, is very good in it and was nominated for a, a Best Supporting Actor. I think there's a lot to like on it. I just find it hard to invest any energy to want to see it again. I get that. I, I enjoyed my rewatch of it this week because it's been a good few decades since I last saw it. But it's not something that I can see myself going back to at any point until we eventually get an actual new Dick Tracy series or something. I like Elliot Ness kind of detective tales. I like this kind of period setting. Hence my love for this film to the degree that I've got. But I can recognise that it's extremely flawed. And just to close this off, just one little interesting fact. The film was nominated for seven Academy Awards. It, it won three eventually. But the film, though, however, is currently tied with Black Panther for having the most wins for a comic book movie. Yeah. If you want to see Dick Tracy, Andy, can we find it 
on streaming. Is it on Disney Plus? That's where you think it, its home would be. You can only find it for rental on most of the rental streaming services at the moment. I'm surprised it's not landed on Disney Plus yet, but it probably will at some point. We'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for just a few well-placed reviews. So Andy's done the Lord work as he does. That's his, that's his role in life now, to review the films that I <laughs> can't be bothered to see. Um, Andy, out of the two films that you're talking about that I've not seen, I, I'm intrigued by both of them to, to some degree. Uh, well, we'll start off with Rye Lane, which landed on Disney Plus this week. So what did you do now? You've escaped the clutches of the Colonel? Like, with your post-KFC life? Oh, I'm an accountant. Boring! Okay. No free popcorn chicken, but still, that's like a proper job. <laughs> yeah, it's not particularly glamorous. No. I actually kind of love it. So is that what you've always wanted to do? Or have you got yourself some thwarted ambition burning away in your gut? You know you're very... Peng? Refreshingly disarming. You ask a lot of questions. I'm interested in people's messes. What makes you think I've got a mess? Everyone has a mess. Hi. <laughs> OK. Um... <laughs> you know, I, I think I did always want to be an accountant. Is that... Is that weird? Don't ask me. I wanted to be Prince when I was little. Specifically, Purple Rain Prince. Yeah? Yeah. I made myself a little costume and everything. Did this get a, a cinema release? Yes. It had a very limited cinema release. Didn't do great business. And I'm now dis more disappointed in myself that I didn't see this on the big screen. Because the visual flair to it is part of the charm. And it, it's just a simple rom-com modern telling set over like a, a very short 24 hours period as two people who just left relationships have a meet cute and just get chatting about relationships and about life in general and start to share a bond and it's it's, it's joyous it's short it's about 80 odd minutes and it's just paced so well and your london setting and the rye lane of the title is part of the character all the personalities that inhabit that world are as important as the two lead characters. David Johnson and Vivian Oprah as Dom and Yaz play the lead roles beautifully, both damaged by the bad breakups they've just been through and finding common ground in their post-relationship anxieties and sorrows and their refusal to accept that they were anyway at fault. As they spend the day chatting about their experiences, they start to bond and bring a spark of life back to each other's souls. It doesn't take long to connect with the pair as they drift from art galleries to food vans to karaoke bars in their attempts to relight the fire of life within each other. And this is all aided by a slick visual and editing style that takes in the beauty of the urban setting of Rye Lane and the surrounding Peckham area. I've never been a lover of the fisheye lens when it's overused, but here it's not only very prominent throughout, but it's done so in a wonderfully magical way. It allows the environs around the pair to be shown in an otherworldly beauty. It brings life to the setting, the myriad of buildings and characters the pair encounter over their day lending to the film. Editing cuts from location to location with conversations seamlessly flowing on without leaving you wondering how they were still talking about the same thing, despite the different shot. The friends and strangers the pair encounter along the way weave in and out meticulously, offering some comedic moments at times or poignant messages at others. And in amongst the cast of small parts are short cameos by names such as Levi Roots and a genuine double-take moment of Colin Firth as a tortilla chef. It's charming, it's extremely funny, and definitely an insightful look at relationships. It does something fresh with the rom-com formula, shining a spotlight on love in a modern urban setting. 
and it's definitely one to watch. Your next film, I've only seen the first one, and I, it's kind of a legend based on a, a, a real person. And at that point, I thought the first film did, did pretty good. I didn't expect there to be further films in, in a series about what was in, historically a, a real-life human being. And that's Ip Man, The Awakening. The Ip Man series of films, which starred Donnie Yen, told a fictionalised version of the life of the real-life Ip Man, or Yip Man, who was a Cantonese martial artist and grandmaster of Wing Chun in the early 20th century Hong Kong. That series of films served the tale well with solid drama, wonderful choreography and editing on the fights, and all largely carried by Donnie Yen's charisma throughout. Solid entries into the legacy of martial arts films of all time, even the spin-off Master Z was a strong entry. However, none of that has anything to do with this new attempt from the mainland China film industry to tap into the legendary tale with a sort of prequel reboot where nobody connected to those earlier films returns. Young Master Ip prevents a kidnapping and ignites a turf war, coming up against a ruthless human trafficking ring that places Ip and those around him in deadly danger. Si Mew steps into the role as the fresh young Master Ip, and whilst he tries his hardest to shine on screen, he's severely let down by pretty much everything around him. Coming from the mainland Chinese industry, this feels at times to be a propaganda piece, with the English elements ruling Hong Kong all shown to be twisted and corrupt to demonstrate how much better that territory would have been under Chinese ruling. The heavy-handed approach of that aspect beats down the tale somewhat as a result. The production values don't help the film either, with some of the effects work being woefully played, and the action sequences, which have always been a strong element throughout the series of films, is choppily edited to be almost incoherent as a result. Throw into the mix some of the worst dialogue exchanges this side of a pantomime, and an underwhelming cast of extras that fail to convey any of the drama or menace and the result is a film that runs for 87 minutes that feels around 90 minutes too long. It's less Ipman and more Skipman. I'm going to say, usually you're quite forgiving. That is a resounding no yeah. on that one. Yes. I, I mean, I wasn't interested in the first place, but now um, if I see it walking down the street, I'll just cross the road to avoid it. <laughs> one film, though, that we didn't cross the road to avoid that we saw together is this week's big release. Yes, it's the latest from Marvel Studios, and it is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. I look around at us on May 5th. You know what I see? Family. I love you all. Saying goodbye. It's time. Is a hole. Yeah! <laughs> lot of fun. It's the end of the road, Guardians. That is sad. You know what's sad? People on Earth die when they're like 50. Are you about to die? I'm not 50. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. So you and I saw this a few days before its actual release. And interestingly enough, Andy, before I, I talk about what the plot is, if we'd have done a review for this that evening, I think it would have been, from me anyway, a different review than the review I'm going to give today. After it's settled. Yes. Yeah. It's also a film that we're going to have to be very careful about reviewing because literally you can't say anything about the plot without giving stuff away because the trailers gave us nothing. What we can tell you is on the instructions of the high evolutionary, a megalomaniac, if ever there was one, Adam Warlock attacks the Guardians of the Galaxy at their base at Nowhere and puts Rocket in jeopardy, so much so that they have to go and save his life. They go on an epic quest to save their friend and ally. 
And that's all we're going to tell you, apart from this is the last in the James Gunn-directed Guardians of the Galaxy. So, as I said, if I'd have talked about this after we'd seen it, I would have said something along this. Yes, it was better than the second installment, which I thought was fun, but okay. I enjoyed it to a degree. I thought the music was good. I thought the payoff was fantastic. I had a good time with it. But I just thought it was it was good. But I've I've done that rare thing, and and I think we should always do that. And and it's to sleep on it and think mm -hmm. about it. And then something happened when I was revisiting in my head, getting ready for the show. I actually reconsidered my review, and I think it is a fantastic send off to this particular part of the Marvel universe. I thought the first film was fantastic. I I think the second one was okay. It's got some moments in it rather than being a cohesive film. I, I think it, it, it falls apart a little bit in the second act and it gets a bit weak. But this one kind of crept up on me and the emotional content crept up on me more so than the action sequence. I do think the second act is a little bit weak. It's a little bit patchy and a bit all over the place. There's a, a sense of dread about the, the characters that runs through the film, but it's the emotional ticking clock that runs through the film that stayed with me in a way that I didn't think it would. Yeah, this is another pe very personal journey for characters within the Guardians films. Uh, each of the Guardians gets something to build their own direction and their own arcs at the same time as the core story, which is all around Rocket. And as expected from Gunn, there's that strong balance of heart and humour and with some very dark and really like foreboding moments that are core and central to this film's whole entire journey anyone who's paid attention in the earlier entries will have already seen the underlying darker edge that gun can put in quite smartly without making it feel too oppressive under vivid and beautiful visuals and boy does this film look amazing a color explosion you know what it reminded me of from the look of it it reminded me of roger vadim's barbarella yes in places that kind of uh over designed ultra colorful i mean we i don't think we've we've seen science fiction look like this since the 60s no over designed over colorful uh huge sets that are very very showy and uh, incredibly art designed it had that that sort of vibe of it right down to the colored spaces which was a bit of a tribute to again i think films like barbarella yeah and 2001 yeah it is gun showing his movie roots as much as it is anything else i think what works about it for me is these characters are at their best when they're at their weakest and that they're mm. and they're about to fail because that emotional bond and there is a, a very clever use of group right at the end which i'm not going to spoil that we care about them as a family and they are exactly that they are an on-screen family and it allows the guardians of the galaxy this time to to face their fears and and, and sometimes what it means to say goodbye uh, and how painful that is as well. This is definitely the best looking Marvel film in so quite some time. Gunn works very closely with effects teams on his films because when he's writing a script, the same way as he knows what music he wants in each scene, he also knows visually what he wants from the film. And so he'll discuss this with the effects team. It's like, this is what's in my mind's eye, and he'll sketch out ideas. Some writers and directors, they'll leave the effects team to just present things back to them and go, oh yeah, I like that, I like that. But because Gunn is so involved in every aspect of his filmmaking process, what you see on screen is pretty much exactly what he wanted to convey. And that's why it looks so great. With regards to the tunes, 
the soundtrack, as you'd expect, is packed with some solid hits and absolute bangers of music. Although to me, this time, it did feel it occasionally was overdone, that yeah, one or two yeah. tracks didn't need to be in there. Sometimes an orchestral score can work a lot better. And there's a few moments in this film that when it suddenly breaks out into another 90s indie hit, I was like, nice song, but that's kind of just broke the moment for me. Though I've got to be honest, they, they did have an Alice Cooper song in there, which... which... <laughs> and, and such a, a such a deep deep cut that it almost threw me out of the film. What you get is okay. This film isn't perfect, as I said before. There's there's some elements in the second act which could easily have lost. I think you could have lost ten minutes, mm. a bit of bagginess, and a little bit of that snark which has started to uh, frustrate me a lot in some of the Marvel films that can uh, uh, could easily been eradicated. However. Uh, and as I, as I said, thinking about this, this is one of the darkest Marvel films that there's been. There has been genuine moments where I was welling up, um, trying not to shed a tear. Uh, and even though you've got those slower patches, you know, Gunn loves these characters and yeah. that shines through. And that's what I came back to. So as I said, I think my initial reaction would have been a lot different if we'd have recorded it the next morning. But living with this film, I have seen it in, in a different light and I think I know what Gunn wants us to say and what he's done. And I think the more I've lived with it, it's become a better movie. There's faults with it from my point of view. It could be a little bit shorter. There's slightly baggy second act, but I think, I think what the film is actually saying makes it uh, a much better film than I, I anticipated. The core cast are all great, as you'd expect. They're now so familiar with the roles that they just do them effort effortlessly the new members of the cast added in really I, I really dug what they did with adam warlock yeah can i just make a point on that i've seen stuff on on the internet where they're going well he doesn't do a lot it's a bit childlike if you've read your comics yeah when he first <laughs> appeared and he wasn't called adam warlock right at the right at the beginning he was called him he was a child yeah in those early Fantastic Four Thor runs that he uh, that Jack Kirby introduced the character with, he was a powerful child. It was only once you got into the Jim Starlin run that he became this sort of neo-god. But he was childlike for a lot of the run, yeah. including sort of the power of Adam Warlock, the very first Roy Thomas Gil Kane issue. So I, I think they played him, especially with the Counter-Earth, which is a real throwback to those very first run of, of his own title. Yeah. It captured Adam Warlock as he is this sort of deity, but with, with the mind of a child. I've been saying exactly the same thing, is that this is what adam warlock was in the comics it, it's bizarre that so many people try to claim that they know everything about a comic book character when they're clearly just basing it on the more recent histories of the character yeah. if you're not sure of the full history don't comment it just just stick away from it the runtime flew by for me cosmo was an absolute delight of a character I had a fun time. For me, I still prefer the first and second films. The second film for me grew on me on the repeated viewings. And I think this will grow on me on repeated viewings. Yes, I, I, I still preferred it to number two. Still preferred it yeah. to, I don't think it's touched volume one. I think that was just, a that was lightning in a bottle. It was so yeah. unique. But I think maybe that's because we, we've grown with these characters. There is, a, as I said, there's a, a, a lovely little payoff. If you get the, get the joke mm -hmm. with Groot right at the end. Yeah. Uh, that we are all part of Guardians of the Galaxy family. It'll be yeah. sad to see them go, even though, you know, it's Marvel. We've probably not seen the end of them in some way. And just to round off, I just need to mention that the action in this is so well shot. And there's a scene in it which is now going to put a whole new shine on Corridor action scenes in anything going forwards. 
absolute perfection. Forget your old boys. Forget your Daredevil TV series. James Gunn has just delivered the best action scene in a long corridor. That's it for the reviews. Andy, what can we expect this week? Cinemas, it's a bit quiet this week. Uh, no one wants to step on the toes of week two of Guardians of the Galaxy. Love Again and Book Club, the next chapter, neither of which have any appeal to me. And at cinemas across the UK on Saturday night, you can see the Eurovision Song Contest play out live. You can do that at your local cinema. I'm going to do it on my local couch. Now TV and Sky, the old way, the Nick Cage Western lands on there. Not a great word. No, but I'll check it out, let's be honest. A Sky original, Deadshot, lands on Now TV and Sky. I was charmed by it when I sat and watched it last year. Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris arrives this week, and Vengeance also arrives. Over on Netflix, the film called The Mother, which sees a deadly assassin reunite with a daughter she abandoned to protect her whilst on the run from those out to kill her. That old chestnut. Which sounds, sounds very generic. It sounds an awful lot like Shane Black's Last Kiss Goodnight, but, but that's just me. Disney Plus, both, I think both me and Lee would suggest that you check out Ad Astra when it lands on there this week. Oh, yeah. We had a great great time with we it, had, didn't we? We enjoyed it. And there's also Crater lands on there, which looks like a bit of sci-fi family fantasy adventure. Paramount Plus, one of many Bruce Willis's films that were due to get released, Wire Room, lands on there. But the pick of the week this week, I've been looking forward to this documentary. Apple TV Plus, still a Michael J. Fox movie. Oh, yes, they have seen the trailer for that. That looks interesting. So we'll hopefully both see that and we'll talk about that next week. And that, folks, is it for this week's film file. But as you regular listeners know, and not so regular listeners about to be introduced to our neat things, stuff that we have uh, enjoyed, whether that be a meal, a movie, a game, you name it, as long as we think it's pretty neat, we want to share with you. And Andy... What's your neat thing for this week? So it's been about three weeks since I last mentioned Audible, so it's about time that I mentioned Audible again, isn't it? I'm just about to get into my next Audible book, so that's probably going to be my neat thing in the next couple of weeks. I'm putting a pause on the Audible subscription for the next few months because I've just discovered loads of things on Spotify, so the next few months you'll get to get a lot more Spotify audio plays. But in the meantime, I've rounded off my experience with Audible with Dave Grohl's The Storyteller. Oh, I bought that book for my missus uh, for Christmas, not last year, year before. I don't think she's got around to reading it yet. Absolutely fantastic. It's read by Dave himself as he tells the story of his early life, his getting into punk and, you know, becoming like a bit of a rocker and an outcast. His tentative steps into getting into the music industry, the people that he met along the way there, the Nirvana era of success, which was overwhelming for Nirvana, led to the tragic consequences, and how the Foos rose up from that, and other, his other projects that he's worked with since, and the big names that he's met, the meeting of his heroes, yeah, everything about where his life started to where it is and what it means to him, be it family, friends, relationships, and the music itself. It's called Storyteller, and boy, he's a great storyteller. He's got such a great voice for telling these tales, that I've been hooked on every word. It's been an absolute wonderful, wonderful audiobook to listen to. Another one of those great autobiographies read by the person who wrote it, that just, you can feel the emotion. You can, when he's expressing like how things meant to him, it comes across so much better with them telling it. This is why I love my audiobooks. This is why I love my audio like adaptations of biographies, because you get a lot more of the emotion from it. It's well worth checking out in, physical print as well but Dave Grohl's Storyteller is my neat thing and it's a 
really, really solid, neat thing. Uh, my neat thing this week, and as I said, probably in the next couple of weeks, I'm starting a new Audible, so that'll probably hit because I, I do think they are so well done. I've just finished Doom McKee, Stephen King's. But my neat thing for this week is a graphic novel. It's a collection of DC Comics's, well, Vertigo run of Lucifer. So you probably recognize the character of Lucifer from the TV series, which is currently on Netflix, played by Tom Ellis. And that's basically taking all the elements from the run of the graphic novel. So we met Lucifer in uh, Sandman. And of course, uh, Gwendolyn Christie portrayed a version of the character in the Netflix version of uh, the Sandman. We have Lucifer Morningstar, who has decided to give up on hell and live on earth uh, opens a club exactly like the tv series and is basically working out who he is in the great scheme of things it's written by mike carey british writer who brings uh, a lot of knowledge about the biblical legends of lucifer uh, and does something very very fresh with the character as i said if you've watched the tv series the setup is pretty much the same and lucifer is a charming character, not as charming as Tom Ellis, but in a in a very, very different way. It's been a great read. Uh, I, I started with book one and quickly got into the second volume very, very suddenly after it. Big fan of Vertigo's line. It's a shame that DC Comics pulled the plug on it. I know they've been tempted to sort of step back in with what they're calling their black label, but Vertigo was, was just a brilliant brilliant run and i don't think there's anything being better uh in, in comics and, and nothing's ever surpassed it creator-led comics that had uh, a mature idea that did a lot with the graphic and narrative form of what we expect from comics and of course we got my particular favorite hellblazer we got uh we got preacher we got grant morrison's the invisibles which was a fantastic series fables fables yeah which eventually kind of found its way onto tv in a in a, in a different source of course we got sandman uh they, they were absolutely absolutely unique comics and and highly highly missed and if you've not read any of um sandman hellblazer preacher or lucifer then give it a go but lucifer is my neat thing for this week and that folks is us done we're done with another film file, but of course, we'll be back next week. And of course, couldn't do it alone because that would just be silly without the guy <laughs> on the other end of the microphone, Mr. Andy Meekin. Yep. I'm sat here doing the recording and keeping a close eye to make sure it doesn't kick us out at 1 hour 48 every week for some reason. It's like a Stephen King story. What a, what a weird number to choose for it. You'd think it would let you go to two hours before it suddenly goes, oh, no, we're going to kick you out. I think One it's there to freak us out. Said to keep yeah. us on those toes. Uh, we'll see you again in uh, another week where we've got lots more news, lots more gossip, and um, lots more of us. A lot more of us. <laughs> That's what you really tune in for. Andy, take care, my friend. And you. But you know, it's legal for me to take you down to the station and sweat it out under the light. Gave it a lot of thought. I don't think it'll be as strong as last week's, but here we go. Can't think. Of one. <laughs> <laughs> trying to think of uh, something that you said last week that that resonated with me, which was like like with the Nicolas Cage one. Sit there and watch. Get to the chopper. <laughs> what? Get to the chopper. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's gonna end up on the end. I know. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't help it. <laughs>
You just did a whole line of get to, get to, get to. Yeah. It, had to be done. it had to be thrown in there. <laughs> Dick Tracy. We Which have... is a name, not a command. <laughs> it's like Iron Man. It's Iron Woman. <laughs> Iron Woman. Um, I forgot lost by. <laughs> Keep the bugger in, it's funny. <laughs> Keep the bugger in. <laughs> Keep buggering. Oh, Mrs. Nurse. Oh, no. <laughs> Who at that point was one of the biggest music stars in the world. Ice cream. Oh, can you hear that? Yeah. <laughs> it might just get. I'll say, I'll try it again once it's gone. Did um, you say butt club? Book club. It's like it's Ange goes to book club every, every other Sunday and it's like, do you say butt but club? club. You're going, oh. <laughs> I mean, you take when you take some of the lines of con, out of context from Dick Tracy. When you got things like, "Yeah, thirty seconds, no more dick. Thirty seconds, no more dick. Thirty seconds, no more dick." <laughs> yeah, he does want to. Uh, uh, I'm looking for generals. I got foot soldiers. I want dick dead. <laughs> <laughs> I might just do that one instead. I guess that's the end of Dick. 